Hi, everybody. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation, Land of Israel Network. It is uh, late on Monday, September 5th, 2022, here in the Land of Israel, the ninth day of Elul, 5782. Um, it's been really hot. It's not as hot as it was, but uh, guiding last week was really, really tough. But, um, but it's been great, as usual. So glad to be guiding people in the land again. If you're going to be here, by the way, September 20th, I've got a trip that's open to the public, a bus trip to, let's see if I pronounce this right, Khirbit Air Rafid, which is a live archaeological dig just west of Shiloh. Some preliminary surveys that they did there found Hasmonean remains, which is not all that common. So we're going to go there. We're going to go to a live archaeological dig. I cannot tell you what we're going to see because they just started digging there a couple of days ago. So in the interim couple of weeks, who knows what they're going to find. It's super exciting. There also might be some film crew there that day. Anyway, if you've never been to a live archaeological dig, it is pretty wild. So that's your opportunity to go. And of course, to climb down from the high of being on an archaeological dig, we're going to have to have some wine. So we're going to go over to Carnation Run to Gatsham Run to their award-winning winery. But before that, we're going to stop at Shirata Aretz, which is our honeymakers, beekeepers, because it's a week before Rosh Hashanah. So you have to get honey and you have to get the freshest honey you possibly can. So that's the day. It's planned for September 20th. Be in touch with me if you want more details. And I would love to see you on the bus last trip of 5782, but hopefully a lot more coming in the future. So as many of you know, I interview a lot of authors on this show. I love reading and I get books. A lot of people send me books to read. And what you don't know is that a lot of them, I don't end up reviewing. I send like a polite note back to the author, to the promoter, the, the publisher and say like, it just not doesn't fit with where I'm going, uh, sometimes because it doesn't fit with my show, but a lot of times just because it wasn't a great book. But I have to say that I am wholeheartedly thrilled and excited to have Jeffrey Weiss on the line. I mean, he's actually in Tel Aviv, which is really nice that we're in the same time zone. And I love when people are in Israel because he sent me his book, Fighting Back, Stan and his and his brother, Craig Weiss, they co-wrote, Stan Andrews and the Birth of the Israeli Air Force. And I have to tell you, and this really happens, I couldn't put the book down. So I haven't finished it yet because I didn't have time to get to the end of it, but it was really, and I know how it ends anyhow, no spoiler alerts, really, really an excellent book. So Jeff, thank you so much for being able to join me here on Rejuvenation and for writing really an excellent book. So I didn't really give you any kind of intro. Please tell my audience about you, about yourself and what got you to write this book. Sure. This is our second book. Uh, back in 1998, uh, to coincide with Israel's 50th anniversary, we wrote a book called I Am My Brother's Keeper. And it was about uh, the North Americans, primarily Americans, but also some really interesting Canadians who uh, came to Israel in 1948 and fought in the war. Almost all were World War II veterans, uh, and they made their most uh, significant contribution in the Air Force, where they really right. helped dominate uh, the ranks of, of, of the pilots. There were some South Africans as well. And they were quite a fascinating uh, group of people. Um, in the course of that research, we came across uh, the story of Stan Andrews and uh, became very fascinated by him particularly. Um, at that time, we really wanted to tell the larger story of the whole group of North American volunteers, but made it kind of a goal of ours to really chase after the Stan Andrews story in more detail after the 50th anniversary had passed and we had more time to really explore a single individual story. And, and, and that's what led to this book. I mean, there's so many things to unpack here because, uh, first of all, I want to thank you because the term of the terminology that you use in the book, you're very straight when it comes to like you call you call the area Palestine, which is what it's called until the birth of Israel in 1948, and then you call it Israel. 
All right. And a lot of people like muddy that up and you really did it historically accurate, which I personally appreciate because it makes me nuts when people do one or the other. But also you managed to really get into Stan. I'm like, you know, I feel like I know I know him. Uh, of course, like I'm grieving all the way through because obviously, you know, you're writing a book about someone who didn't make it. Right. But really, uh, you must have done a tremendous amount of research on his what he's doing. And I don't want to give too much away, but what he's doing in World War II and how he becomes the pilot he is. But the background context is, of, of course, the historical events of the time. And I think it's really important because you bring forth things that either many of us didn't know at all or forgot. For example, a little tidbit that the United States rescinded its support for the fledgling state of Israel, if you will, for their vote in the UN partition plan, basically because they thought we weren't going to make it and they didn't didn't want to back something that was going to fail. So I think that was a super important point. And really, you sprinkle the book with, with so many facts. Tremendous amount of research. How did you, let's go back to like the Pacific Theater and where he fights. I mean, how were you able to get a hold of some of that information? Kind of the starting point for it all was we had been told by others who served with Stan that he was doing a lot of writing while he was in Israel. So we surmised that, you know, that he had made a special effort to keep journals while he was in Israel. And we had assumed that all of that would have gone to his family after the war. And so kind of our initial plan was just track down his family. They'll have a footlocker or something of the sort. There'll be a bunch of stuff inside and kind of voila, that will be our, that'll be our research. It took us about seven years to track down his family. Um, They had not stayed uh, in touch with the, with the community of veterans of the war. And his last name, Andrews, was just not a very searchable name. So it took a long time. We did finally uh, find, we tracked down his uh, sister-in-law and then his sister and, and, and then, you know, really close friends from high school, from college, uh, squadron mates from World War II, and, and of course, from Israel as well. And then started to piece it together from there. It turned out that most of his materials were actually not returned to the family after the war. Uh, we did find a bunch really? of archives, yeah, which was hmm. its own its its own part of the story. You'll get to that later okay. in the book, which was quite a tragedy. But um, you know, a lot was still in the archives. And then we tracked down letters that he had sent to his two best friends who were still alive at the time that we began the research, and that was terrific. So, kind of piece by piece, we 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 met some really key people who had kept uh, high school essays, who had kept college essays, who had kept letters that they had exchanged with him during World War II and during um, his his service in Israel. With respect to his service in the Pacific in particular, I tracked down in the uh, archives uh, in Washington, basically after action reports for every single mission that he flew in World War II, the originals written in his own hand. I mean, every detail you could want, including how many bullets, you know, how many bullets he fired and how many bombs he dropped mm-hmm. on their target, what time he left, what time he returned and what happened um, on the on the mission. And then um, I was able to track down a lot of his World War II squadron mates and actually attended a squadron reunion about uh, 15 years ago and met a number of people who had served with him and had some pretty um, specific recollections of what he had been like. So, yeah, it was it was it was quite a journey and it was it was exciting every step of the way, I have to say. He seems to have been quite a talented artist as well. Some of the sketches that you include in the book are like, wow. And this yeah. guy would have really made his mark had he lived. Yeah, that was part of what I think drew us to the story, that he he had so much to live for. He had so much to give. He had so much uh, talent. But he, you know, he risked it all um, because this this cause spoke to him. And, and, and it spoke to him despite the fact that he was not raised to be a Zionist. He was not raised to be... Um, a committed Jew. Um, mm-hmm. 
many ways spent uh, most of his life uh, up until he went to Israel, really kind of um, trying to um, avoid being recognized as a Jew, changed his right. last name. Um, I tracked down a, a World War II tentmate, uh, a guy named Sil Morance, and uh, got him on the phone, introduced myself, told him I was writing a book about Stan Andrews. And he stopped me and he said, look, I'm Jewish. And I was a bit taken aback and I said, okay. And he said, he wouldn't admit to me that he was Jewish. He said, here it is, <laughs> we're two Jews from New York in a tent in the Philippines. Really? And he, all he would say is he was from New York. He wouldn't say that he was, he wouldn't acknowledge that he was a Jew. Um, and so to go from, you know, kind of that mindset and that um, attitude to um, deciding that this was um, the most important thing that he could do with his life was, was, was pretty, um, pretty astonishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that comes through very strongly in the book is, is he's very conflicted. Uh, he may oh, conflict about his Judaism and how it rolls into Zionism. I mean, I think for a lot of us, we're sitting here in 2022, Israel's been around now for close to 75 years. And there's this understanding of, you know, Israel is a Jewish state and whether you support it or not, Zionism not. But I mean, if we put ourselves back into those years, we're talking about the late 1940s, there isn't in Israel yet. That term of like, who is a Zionist and who's not a Zionist is relatively like relatively new, or if, even if it even really exists, that whole idea of a free Jewish state. I mean, you're, you're on the back of, you know, the six million are still smoldering in Europe. And it's almost like this comes from a, for him, fighting for Israel comes from, you know, like damn them, you know, almost like revenge or, you know, as a soldier for the helplessness of the Jews of Europe. And if he can do something to prevent that, it's not really coming from like from a Jewish place that we need a Jewish homeland. It's more, you know, that we need a, we need to be able to fight back this Jew that can't fight back. We can't have that anymore. Is that how, is that how you read him and where he was going? Yeah, yeah very much so. I think, you know, he, th- there's a terrific movie that uh, came out in 1947. I believe it won best picture that year starring Gregory Peck called Gentleman's Agreement. And it, it really does a, a, a wonderful job of of capturing what what kind of anti-Semitism, the, sort of the polite anti-Semitism of, <laughs> of 1940s America looked like. And and it's what Stan encountered uh, in the States. And I think even more so um, when he was uh, in the army in World War Two. And, and it just galled him. And, and it wasn't, you know, that he was physically assaulted or anything of the sort, but just but just those those anti-Semitic digs that were so common at the time. It, it really, it really got to him and mm-hmm. him, you know, he saw what was happening in, in, in then Palestine, soon to be Israel as a historic opportunity as a Jew to stand up and, and fight back. And, and that title fighting back comes out of, um, out of a letter that he wrote um, uh, to his brother. He wrote two really interesting, incredible Zionist manifestos, um, a letter, one to uh, his best friend and a second to his brother. Uh, in March of 1948, before he left, explaining his motivations for going, and 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 this notion that this was a historic opportunity as a Jew to stand up against anti-Semitism really was was preeminent in his thinking about why he should go. Mm-hmm. So, and if you put it in the context of the time, again, you know, right on the backs of of the tremendous slaughter of Jews, and like Jews like him being in an army, but not necessarily as Jews. I mean, he wasn't in the American army as a Jew. He's in the American army as an American. And I mean, you, you make the point so clear also that it was a way of getting acceptance in the United States. I mean, I, I wasn't as aware, definitely before I read the book, of that level of anti-Semitism in the States in the 1940s. I mean, you just kind of, 
I know FDR was not very pro-Israel. That has come out over the years. They didn't fill the quotas that they, the minimal quotas that they had of getting Jews out of Europe. But I wasn't as aware of that kind of underlying, as you said, this gentleman's, you know, like they weren't beating up Jews in the street, but there was this, like this nastiness and that the Jews became like super Americans to some degree. I mean, at way out of proportion to their numbers joining their armed forces and not necessarily to fight in Europe to save the Jews in the camps, you know, but they're fighting the Japanese, which is not necessarily a threat against the Jews. So, um, I mean, what did you do? Uh, Cause I learned a tremendous amount from the book. What did you learn from your research or you knew a lot of this already um, from your I previous think, like, book? I think it's funny. I, one of the things that tripped us up with trying to track down his family was we did not appreciate that he had changed his last name. And in 2005, I tracked down by sending a letter to the editor of a New Jersey Jewish newspaper based on a, on a rumor that I'd heard that turned out not to be really true, but it, it got me where I, to where I needed to go. I tracked down a high school classmate of his, and he told me he had changed his last name from Annex Stein to Andrews. And I think when I first heard that, I thought, wow, like how shocking, like how how at war he must have been with his with his Jewishness to have changed his last name. And, and, and certainly he was conflicted about his Jewishness in a significant way. But, but I think when you look at it in context, everybody was doing it at the time. Right, exactly. Um, you know, there were, there were so many, you know, uh, celebrities, uh, you know, Edward G. Robinson, George Raft, you know, uh, uh, Lauren Bacall. Uh, Hetty Lamar. Yeah. Douglas. Yeah. Correct. And so I mean, my old family, my, my last name. Okay. So my husband's last name, Harrow was Horowitz. You know, yeah. my father-in-law changed the name, anglicized the name. Of course, then we all moved to Israel where it's a little difficult to say in Hebrew, but leaving that aside, <laughs> but they were certainly not the only ones. It didn't just happen on Ellis Island because the, you know, the admissions person to the United States couldn't pronounce the name. It was a way of fitting in to the United yeah. States, anglicize the names. But the yeah, rest I mean, of his family didn't do it. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I'm, I'm, I'm one of seven kids, and my parents, both of them were born in the 30s, gave each one of us a middle name that really was a middle name, but it was really a last name. And, and, and so that we would have the ability, should we want to at some point in our lives, to basically use the middle name as our last name. Huh. Uh, and it, it, a very non Jewish name. My, my middle name is Lloyd. So Jeffrey Lloyd would be. You know, a right. seeming normal sounding. Uh, Craig's middle name is uh, is Howard. Craig Howard. Like they, they're very. Uh -huh. Did um, anybody do that? Did anybody drop? No, place? none of us did it. No. But, um, Interesting, though, that they thought that out to give you the exactly. Um, <laughs> and and uh, and I did actually. <laughs> I'd heard it. I never actually heard it directly from my parents, but then was able to verify that with my mom a few years ago. But um, but I think it just you know kind of reflects that hey, they may want to do this one day. Like it, it may become necessary. It may become a good idea for them to be able to essentially present as, as, as not being Jewish. Um, so I thought that part was, was, you know, was quite fascinating. You know, the World War II stuff at a high level, of course, I, I had heard about before, but, but the particular unit that he served in in World War II was absolutely fascinating. Um, it was one of the most, I think, accomplished Air Force units or Army Air Corps units in, in the Pacific theater. They used to do this they had this really fascinating way of attacking Japanese ships, which is they would come in low, like 50 feet off of off of the water, and they would literally skip uh, bombs into the side of these uh, of these ships, you know, was something that he really found exhilarating and wrote, you know, with great color yeah. about his experiences that I actually had not heard about before. And I thought that was uh, I thought that was quite fascinating. Hmm. 
Oh, so he's quite the ladies man. You don't shirk that at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was. He was very much so. But at the same time, I think, and it was fascinating because he had a girlfriend who I suspect he would have married had he not gone to Israel. Oh, yeah. I, I tracked mm-hmm. down. She passed away in the 80s, as it turned out. But I was always anxious to find her, did finally find her and her family in a crazy way and, and was put in touch with her oldest daughter. The oldest daughter was just a wonderful person, shared some a couple of pictures, um, including a picture of a, a high quality di- digital image of an oil portrait that Stan painted of, of her mom. Mm-hmm. And she said, I think he was, you know, he was the love of her life, um, you know, probably married on the rebound after after losing him. And she wasn't Jewish. And she was not Jewish. So, yeah, I mean, it was it, there just was so much to unpack with his story. But mm-hmm. yeah, he was quite the ladies man. He was he was very committed to her. And then when he left, you know, I think he he became kind of the stereotypical 1940s American soldier at war. Right. And it, there was a very carousing mentality at the time. Uh, in mm-hmm. terms of what was the mm-hmm. what appropriate way for a for a GI to behave when overseas, um, and, right. and much fit that uh, stereotype, right? So, and I mean, the part that I found fascinating is an Israeli. I mean, you talk about the Israeli Air Force; that's quite a stretch to talk about the Israeli Air Force. They had like four planes that came in different parts, and it, what's so incredible is how hard it was for Israel for the Jews at the time pre-Israel to get arms from anybody. I mean, in the end, it's really Czechoslovakia who comes through, and that's about it. Um, I mean, and things, of course, that we already knew how difficult the British were making it as well. Uh, Count Bernadotte, how, let's just say there were many more people who were pro-Arab than they were pro-Jewish. And I'm reading that, and then looking around this country, you know, 75, almost 75 years on, at the amazing country that it is, you're sitting in Tel Aviv, which is just a world-class city, and apparently also the most expensive one, on any level, you know, I'm outside Jerusalem, which is just, there's nothing like Jerusalem. And uh, and this this almost didn't come to be, I mean, at least as an independent state. There were so many roadblocks and so many difficulties to overcome that you read that, you know, just from the perspective of the Air Force and, and then half the planes go down, you know, like they're basically used one time <laughs> because of, of what that shape there. And it's just really astonishing that we were able to just even come to be at all. Now, I know that's not the point of the book, but the back. No, but it, to an wow. extent it is, the, it, I think to an extent it is the point of the book. In other words, it really was a, it was a monumental struggle. The, the, the outcome of it was not at all uh, preordained. It, it, nope. could have, it could have gone in a very different direction. And, and, and of course, many people thought that it would, um, thought that Israel would not be able to withstand uh, an Arab invasion. You know, to me, what's so fascinating is, you know, Stan was there virtually on the ground floor of the of the of the building up of the Air Force, which at the yeah. beginning was was, was really not a, a fighting force at all. And then by the end of the war, they were able to replace those Czech built Messerschmitts with uh, with real British Spitfires. And by then they had recruited really almost an all star cast of World War Two era pilots. And, and by the end of the war, really had a first rate uh, Air Force for that for that time period. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think many of what we think of as the characteristics of the Israeli Air Force today, you see those first seeds being planted back then, you know, having yeah. superior uh, equipment, having uh, the best trained pilots, you know, being outstandingly um, uh, capable of, of prevailing in, in dogfights and things of that sort, um, mm-hmm. taking flight, uh, to the enemy's airspace. Um, 
yeah. you know, all of those things. We, we see that, um, we see the seeds of that uh, during that war. And, and, and tremendous self-confidence as human beings. I mean, they were about as self-confident as it gets. Yeah, and one of the things read that before. Yeah, correct. And one of the things I always loved is just that, um, in a very, I think, symbolic way, you, you see the the connection between Stan then and and the Israeli Air Force today. The one hundred one squadron, which was in the war, the only fighter squadron that uh, the Israeli Air Force had, now is one of of several fighter squadrons that Israel has. But they still use his logo, the logo that he designed back in nineteen fifty eight. Which I'm told, yeah. and this this I'm not, you know, I I, I can't say with 100% certainty that it's true until I see it from an official source, but I've been told that that logo is the only logo of a military unit in the Israeli, uh, in, in the IDF, that has a human likeness. Hmm. It's essentially an angel of death. Uh, yeah, I'm like thinking, well, there's Shimshon, which my son was in, Samson, but I don't know if it's, I can't remember anymore. Interesting. Okay, that's a good good research project. <laughs> but it's a very fanciful image, kind of a, a you know a, a death's oh, head yeah. with goggles and a, and a pilot's scarf. It was a logo that Azer Weitzman, who was in that squadron and was one mm-hmm. of his friends at the time, really uh, fell in fell in love with. I, I actually interviewed Azer's uh, widow at one point, and she told me how much she loved the squadron, the the men who served in it, and the logo in particular. She said the first time that she met him, he was driving a stolen car that had the logo painted on one of the doors. <laughs> that makes sense. It also seemed to be like a little bit of a pushback against Charles Lindbergh, who was also pictured very often in that kind of scarf and who was a raving anti-Semite at yeah. the time. I don't know if anybody knows that because he's kind of got his own panache and the kidnapping, you know, like Lindbergh, Lindbergh baby. But um, he was no friend of the Jews. And the way I'm thinking, like, maybe these Jewish pilots are kind of giving him the what for by, you know, saying, like, the sky's not just yours, Charlie. Like, (laughs) Jews are up here, too. And we're, you know, we're doing pretty damn well. But it is so clear from this book and others that I've read and the films that I've seen. I think Ann Spielberg had put out a film about the the Air Force a few years as well, that without the American and to some degree British Jewish pilots from World War II, the veterans, I don't know if Israel would have come to be. They played an outsized role. They played an outsized role. I, I think it's 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 impossible to, and I, I think at the end of the day, it's it's not productive to say you know. But for these particular right, right. volunteer or that volunteer, this group, you know, is mm-hmm. wouldn't have failed. I, I, you know, I, I, I no way of knowing that right. there was more work than that. But, um, but I, I think the way we put it in the first book was it's 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 good that Israel didn't have to find out. It's good that yeah. they were there. They clearly played. Um, they made a, a significant contribution, and uh, and one worth remembering and celebrating. Mm-hmm. And I think for all of us who are a lot of times caught up with who is a Jew, you know, what does that mean exactly? And I read this book, and I think you know, by any standards, they weren't connected to Judaism. Many of them, it was almost to some degree running away from Judaism, you know, or changing their names, or certainly not identifying themselves as Jews or marrying people who were Jews. But when it came to the time when the Jewish state needed them, they were Jews par excellence and they were they were right there. And, uh, you know, and it just it just makes that question all that more interesting. Right. In certain times, in certain places, even someone who's in complete denial about his Judaism, somehow it just pops up there and he does what needs to be done or she at a critical moment. And it can make all the difference. Yes, absolutely. uh, it's really something very special. So what's your connection with Israel? I know you're here now. Where do you live normally? 
Um, I actually, I, I made Aliyah Back for point? me in April um, oh. and uh, it's, it, it was a long uh, delayed and uh, long dreamed of um, thing for me to do. I'm still doing, doing a lot of back and forth, spending right. probably about half my time in the States, have about half my time here and, and hoping to, to, to shift that, uh, that ratio uh, over the mm-hmm. coming years. Um, uh, I lived here for two years back in the 80s. I actually did my first year of law school at Bar-Ilan. Um, cool. And then went back to the States uh, to finish law school and, and, you know, kind of got sidetracked and, uh, you know, have, uh, of course, um, stayed current um, with Israeli affairs. And I, I have I have read Israeli history in Hebrew over the years to keep up my Hebrew. Uh, I was wow. desperate to lose it, having um, having worked so hard to. Um, uh, to that's impressive. That and so um, and, and that's actually what led me originally to discovering this whole Mahal story of, of these foreign volunteers. Uh, back in 1995, I read a book by a guy named Danny Shapira. He was for many years the chief test pilot of the Israeli Air Force. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the first Western pilot to fly the MiG-21 that uh, the Iraqi pilot Munir Redfa uh, defected to Israel with in, I believe, 1966. And Shapira was the one who really discovered its vulnerabilities, which Israel used to great advantage during the Six-Day War. We later, later met uh, Shapira, who was a wonderful, wonderful man. Uh, had great stories to tell. He actually at one point was Idi Amin's personal pilot during the period when Idi Amin was friendly to Israel. Really? Wow. Yeah, Idi Amin actually took a para, uh, paratroop course here in Israel. He used to wear for many years uh, Israeli paratroop wings, though he never did jump. He said that great leaders don't risk their lives. And then, of course, uh, turned on Israel. Um, but uh, right. we, my brother and I had lunch with uh, Danny and his wife uh, in their house. And uh, I kind of naively asked his wife if she had ever met Idi Amin. And she said, meet him. And then she pointed to their living room. She said, I danced the tango with him right over there. Wow. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that's what sort of led, it, led us to it. So I, I read his biography, read about all of these uh, Western pilots, how the official uh, language of of air to ground, air to air communication. The Air Force was actually English until I think about 1949. Um, mm-hmm. It was a story that I had not heard before and then kind of had a, uh, you know, kind of one of these eureka moments uh, and thought three years from now, 1998 will be Israel's 50th anniversary. This would be the perfect time to uncover the story, uh, really research it properly and tell it and have it come out that year, which is exactly what we did. Of course, you know, that's what led us to, to finding out about Stan. So you have another book uh, cooking? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, it's I I love writing. It's something that I will always do. And um, yeah, always on the lookout for something else interesting uh, to take Mm -hmm. on. I particularly am drawn to, um, you know, to people like Stan, who, you know, really have fascinating tales. And, And of course, he was complicated as, as, you know, as, as significant historical figures or heroic historical figures tend to yes. be. Um, but that's part of what made him very compelling to me. He was human. Um, he had, you know, conflicting motivations. He was a complicated figure. Mm-hmm. Not and down, but, um, but that's kind of what really made him so compelling to us. Right. Right. And it's, and he, he gave his life for this country. So, you know, not as an Israeli and for you too, not much more needs to be said than that he was one of the first, uh, definitely not the last of uh, really great people. What was remarkable uh, too was all. that um, he, you know, he really wanted to be a writer and it clearly was a motivation for him. And he, he specifically wanted, and we have record of it in one of his letters, he wanted to write a book about his experiences in Israel. And he wrote a lot of short stories between World War II and his time in Israel. 
And one of his stories almost prophetically tells the story of his last mission. That, you know, there just was a lot here that was really fascinating to us as we, you know, got more deeply into it. It became a very kind of almost spiritual journey for us, you know, almost mm-hmm. like almost like this was a story he wanted us to tell and was leaving little clues for us along the way. It was, it was. Right. Um, it, it he was couldn't quite, tell. So you're telling it for him. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. Amazing. Okay. Where can people get the book? Is it in Hebrew or it's only in English? Any plans? Right now it's only in English. Um, uh, This place uh, is on Amazon. It's available uh, both in a hardcover and in a Kindle version. Um, And there's also an an audio version as well, which can be purchased either on Amazon or on Audible. Mm -hmm. Okay, everybody. Fighting Back, Stan Andrews and the Birth of the Israeli Air Force. You won't regret reading or listening to this book. It'll I mean, it tells you the life of an extraordinary human being, but also really the backdrop of what's happening in the 1940s, both in the United States and here. A lot of information that even I, who's like immersed in all this stuff, learned a lot. So um, so I think it's important on, on really on all ends. Jeffrey Weiss, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm looking forward to interviewing you on your next book, but don't wait 24 years. We will not. We <laughs> will not. You did the 74th, but yeah. Let me pick up the pace. Absolutely. (laughs) That's our goal. That's our goal for sure. Whether you're here. Exactly. In the sunshine. Okay. Terrific. Thank you so much for joining me today. Everybody, if you want to be in touch, you know how to do it. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. Thanks to Ben and to Tapasa. And take care, everybody. Goodbye for now. There's a new generation of pro-Israel activists, and Yishai Fleischer is on the cutting edge. And I see on social media how many people believe the incredible lies against the Jewish people. The blood libel lives and lives stronger than ever. Join Yishai every Thursday for news, Torah, and politics from the heartland of Israel. When I think about all this stuff, I must tell you, I want to get a little bit down. And then I realized, listen, we've got to right now build and do and not become despondent, be positive and strong about moving things forward. I said to myself, Yishai Fleischer, you are not here in this world to sow doubt and fear and disbelief. You are here to channel positivity and strength. That's the Yishai Fleischer Show on the Land of Israel Network at thelandofisrael.com.